Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it here this day. And we've heard it read in a language that we can understand. And we ask now, O God, that you would give us more than earthly understanding. Give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us. Correct us. Yes, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. God, make us more like Jesus. Work in us that which we are unable to do on our own. Mold us and make us. You are the potter. We are the clay. God, I pray that you would be with your people, that you would minister to their hearts this day. Lord, bless the preaching of the word and help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in Youngstown, Ohio, Deland McCullough knew a lot of things. He knew that he was adopted as a baby and he was raised by a single mother. He knew that he was very good at football. He knew he was a very good football player. And he knew... By grace, he knew God's love for him through Jesus Christ. But he had no way, no way of knowing how God was going to outrageously bless him as the story of his life was written over the years. Deland was recruited out of high school to play at Miami University, and he was recruited by a man named Sherman Smith. Sherman Smith was the former running back for the Seattle Seahawks. During Deland's record-breaking career at Miami, and in the years to come, Sherman was very important in his life. Even as Sherman moved on and went other places, Sherman would become a mentor to him and actually a father figure to him, in part filling a role that had been absent for almost his entire life until 2017. 
in 2017, everything changed. Dylan finally decided to find out about his biological parents. And so he secured a copy of his birth certificate, which only listed his mother's name. Her name was Carol Briggs. He also found out his name was John Briggs. Eventually, he was able to locate her thanks to Facebook. See, Facebook does have some good things about it. He was able to locate her via Facebook, and he reached out to her. They planned a phone call, and they did. They connected. He began to learn much about the circumstances surrounding his mom and why she gave him up for adoption. And then he asked the question, the question, the one whose answer would not only stun him, but anyone who's ever heard this story. What is my father's name, he said. His name is Sherman Smith. His name is Sherman Smith. Yes, that Sherman Smith. Common enough name, but that Sherman Smith. The same man who had recruited him to play at Miami the same man who had mentored him all these years, that man was his father. And Sherman Smith didn't even know that he had a son. Carol Briggs never told him. She never told him. So as was his custom, he called. Dylan called Sherman. And this was a phone call unlike any other, right? He starts telling him, guess what? I found my mom. Oh, that's awesome. Great. And I found out my dad wasn't listed on the thing. Oh man, I'm so sorry. But then I called her. Oh, really? Yeah, we connected. We had a great conversation and I asked her who my dad was. Oh yeah? Did you find out? You. You're my dad. You're my dad. Encourage you to look this story up and read about how this impacted Sherman and what went on. But look what God did. Look what God did. The two hadn't seen each other for many years. They they went through paternity tests, all those kinds of things. That's confirmed. They get together, except this time. This time. Sherman had called him son all the time because he called all of his football players son. But this time when they saw each other face to face and he said, my son, he was speaking to him as his true earthly Father, they rejoiced. They rejoiced in God's amazing grace, God's unmistakable providence, and God's enduring faithfulness to provide for his people. Now, some stories, stories like this one, just seem to be too good to be true, don't they? Some stories are just like, whoa, whoa. Deland and Sherman's story is certainly like that. It's a little bit like a short circuit to the brain. What? That really happened? You know what? The story in front of us, the story of Joseph here in Genesis 45 and 46, actually 37 through 50, all of it is a story just like that. It's one of those stories that just seem too good to be true. You see, when stories are filled with overwhelming emotion, when they're filled with unbelievable roller coaster like plot twists and full of drama so thick that you feel like you can cut it with a knife at times, 
stories like these, that they have climactic moments when all is revealed and it just leaves you absolutely speechless. It leaves you wondering how in the world could all of these events come together so well? How could all of this have worked out just right? And if you're reading a book, if you're reading fiction, what do you say? Man, that author was really good. That author was amazing at how he brought that together. So what should we do? When the story is true, we should praise the author. We should praise the author, the one who brought it all together. And that's my aim this morning. My aim this morning is to lead you to praise the one true sovereign God who is not only the author of Deland and Sherman's story, he's not only the author of Joseph's story here, but he's also the author of your story as well. So let's begin by first considering Joseph's revelation to his brothers. If you're taking notes this morning, and I know many of you do, this is our first point, Joseph's revelation. We left off last week in chapter 44 with Judah's emotional plea with Joseph to allow him to take the place of Benjamin and to remain in Egypt as uh, Joseph's servant, as due punishment for that, remember that cup that was placed in Benjamin's bag. So he's gonna take the punishment uh, for Benjamin who apparently stole this cup. Let's look again, I want us to revisit it. Turn back in your Bibles to chapter 44 and let's read verses 30 through 34 again to reacquaint ourselves with the story. Now therefore, this is Judah speaking. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy that is Benjamin is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge. I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That was a tough place to leave last week. Tough spot to end. Judah giving us a glimpse of the glory of our Lord Jesus, who would also stand in our stead and be a pledge for us. We left it there, and so it makes sense now as we turn to 45, the tension you may feel, that overwhelming building emotion within you is clearly present in Joseph. In fact, it's near impossible to communicate the depth of emotion that overtakes Joseph here at the beginning of chapter 45, the author of Genesis, Moses, notes in verse one, notice what it says, that Joseph, quote, could not control himself. Joseph is undone. He's beside himself. And he so orders everyone out of his presence, that's everyone with him, his servants. Remember, Joseph hasn't even spoken in Hebrew to them. He's been using Egyptian language. He's had translators. His brothers have no idea who he is. He's like, you all get out of here. Leave. It's just he and his brothers. And look in verse two. It says that Joseph wept so loudly that all those surrounding him heard it. 
Have you wept that loud? When you were a baby, you did. He wept so loud. It says even Pharaoh's house. Servants of Pharaoh's house heard it. Verses three through eight continues the emotional climax as Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. I am. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. I'm the one you sold into slavery, into Egypt. I am Joseph. Well, put yourself in the brother's sandals for a moment. Can you imagine the range of emotions that must have overtaken them right now? Can you just for a moment, let your mind go there. Fear? Uh-oh. Look what we did. Wonder? Unbelief? Relief, maybe? Joy? Take all that, add a few more, and mix it up, right? Let's apply what was going on. We just named a few. I do find it interesting, however, that Moses, in his record of the brothers' responses, he does it so simply, so matter-of-factly, so kind of Y-chromosome-like. All we really have is what is said at the end of verse 3. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. He was a little bit stronger. They were terrified. Okay, the word for dismayed is the same word used again and again for terrified. They were terrified at his presence. But notice also, let your eyes go down to verses 14 and 15. Notice how Joseph, he, he weeps upon Benjamin's neck and, and Joseph kisses all of them, which was normal at this time, right? He would have put, put his arms around them. He would have kissed them. They would have embraced. And then afterwards, look at the end of verse 15. Look what it says. And his brothers talked with him. Now, many times I'll come home and tell my wife a story, right? And Megan's like, oh yeah, what happened this? Well, what did they say? What did they do? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't remember. This happened. She wants more details, right? We kind of want more details when we see this, right? He talked, what did they talk about? What did they talk about? I'd love to hear what they talked about. Maybe they exchanged stories about what's happened in their lives over the years. Oh yeah, now I'm married and I've got this many kids and I've got this and that. Oh yeah, dad's doing this and all these things are going on. It's been 20 years, 20 plus years. I'd like to think that they may have Ah, you were testing us, weren't you, Joseph? (laughs) That's what all that was. You were testing us. Yeah, that's it. Maybe Joseph told them, but we don't know for sure. But I also think that they talked a lot about what Joseph said to them in verses five through eight, which we already read this morning. You see, Joseph's doing more here than just revealing himself. And he is. It's Joseph's revelation of himself. Here I am. I'm right before you. But Joseph also reveals something absolutely crucial about God and about the way that God works. He begins in verse five right away by telling his brothers, don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves. So don't be dismayed, don't be terrified, don't be mad at yourselves for what you've done because they sold him there. Don't be mad about that. I don't think I'm much like Joseph. This might be a great opportunity to get him back, right? He says, no, don't. Don't. Look what he says in verse five. 
because God sent me before you to preserve your life. Because God sent me before you. You see, in light of the famine and how God had used Joseph to provide for his family, Joseph can now sit back and he can clearly see God's hand at work at work to not only help his brothers get food to eat, but to preserve God's covenant promise to his family. Look at verse seven again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph gets it. He believes beyond a shadow of a doubt what he goes on to say in verse eight. God's at work. God's doing this. God's faithful. It wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. Not you, but God. God has done this wonderful thing. He had a plan to preserve not only your lives and my life, but to preserve your children's lives and their children's. God is being faithful. That's an amazing statement, is it not? Not you, you didn't do this, God did this. You're thinking, wait a minute, does he say that again? Yes, he does, chapter 50, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, but here, here he says, not you, but God. Now we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with that. Some of us might struggle with the truth of it. Some of us might struggle to think that that God is intimately at work in each and every detail of our lives, leading us according to his sovereign will and plan. Many of us struggle, some of us struggle to say that God is sovereign over all these things. Some wrestle with that. And while some of us may have come to fully embrace this, which I believe we rightly should embrace God's sovereignty, that he's in absolute control of absolutely everything. Even though we come to embrace that and we confess that, we still find ourselves struggling with it though, don't we? Especially when we think, wait, how can God use sinful people to work out his sovereign will and plan? We may even ask, how does that work? How can God, who is holy and perfect, how can he use sinful people? How can he use sin to bring about his good and perfect will? I'm gonna make it really simple for you this morning. I know it's a big question. It needs a lot of discussion, but for our time's sake, I'm gonna make it really simple simple for you. Not simple, simple. How would God do it? How else would he do it? Show me a person who is not a sinner. Show me any person who's not a sinner. There is none, is there? There's no human being who is not a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's he left to work with? Only sinners. God always has used sinners to bring about his good and perfect will. That's how God works. That's how he works. So I want you to see that this revelation, not just himself, but the revelation of Joseph's theology at this point is key to the entire story. Though Joseph was indeed sinned against, God in his unfathomable grace and mercy was at work. He was at work writing a story of redemption and reconciliation. God was at work writing a story that not only refined the character of those who were living through it, 
but he's writing a story that would magnify and glorify his covenant faithfulness as he continued to work to preserve his great promises, which is exactly what Joseph says. He's done this to preserve, to preserve. And it's a story that doesn't stop in Genesis chapter 50. It's a story that doesn't stop at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't stop on the last words as they've dried upon the New Testament. No, this story is an ongoing story of God's covenant faithfulness that continues through the ages until when? Until Jesus returns. Until Jesus returns. And it's a story that's being written. I see it being written and hearts all in front of me, and even in my own, the author is still writing his story. It's also a story of reorientation. It's also a story of reorientation, a story about turning, turning from our inward turmoil, our inward despair, that inward hopelessness, turning from that to, to turn outward to God, to turn to God's covenant faithfulness to us. And we get a beautiful, a wonderful picture of this when we consider that second thing I want you to see this morning. It's the reorientation of Jacob. The reorientation of Jacob here in chapters 45 and 46. Jacob's reorientation begins in verses 25 through 28 of chapter 45. Would you go there with me and I'll read. Genesis 45, beginning in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Okay, put yourself in Jacob's sandals. This news had to hit him like a wrecking ball. This is huge. Notice at first, he didn't believe them. His heart was numb. (laughs) He didn't believe them. But then they tell him what Joseph had said. He sees all that Joseph had sent as a gift. And the text says that his spirit was revived. We might say today he came around. He got it. The light bulb went on. Eureka. Okay, he got it. He got it. I love how Moses presents his immediate action, both in verse 28 there and also in 46.1. The very first verse of chapter 46, it's basically, he's like, it's enough. Joseph's alive, let's go. Let's go, pack up your stuff. We're going to Egypt. Pack it up, boys and girls. Let's go. For those of us familiar with the story, 
We love what happens as we go through this narrative, particularly if you go down to 46.29. Look there. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and he went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I mean, this is incredibly emotional. Presented just as fact, right? This is incredibly emotional. What a reunion this must have been. Jacob receives back his son as if he was receiving him back from the dead. Jacob gets to hold his son. Last thing he held of him was a bloodied coat of many colors. Now he actually gets to hold his son. It's hard to even fathom how beautiful that moment must have been. But in all its beauty, in our rush to get there, we miss something very important that happens back at the beginning of chapter 46. So let's go back to verses 1 through 4. Of chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob is a transformed patriarch. We've talked about it before, but you know, from his early days until now, we've seen a lot of foolishness from Jacob. Yet news of Joseph revives him and he faithfully takes up his obedience. He takes up his faith and his trust. And they're obviously weak at this point. It's frail, but he takes it up anyway and he heads off. He's going, he sets his sights, his face is set toward Egypt and he goes, he goes. And he only stops to do what? To worship, to worship and offer sacrifices to God. Think about this for a moment. He might be heading towards something great, but he's also leaving behind something great. What's he leaving behind? The land of Canaan. He's leaving the land of promise. He's leaving what God had promised to give to Abraham and to Isaac. He's leaving it all behind. The the thought of him leaving it is remarkable, if not unthinkable. But make no mistake, Jacob leads the whole family to Egypt. If you don't believe me, it's the whole family. Just read verses 5 through 27. They're all listed. A record of all those who left the promised land and went down to Egypt. Every member of the family. Because this story is really not over yet either, is it? After Easter, we're going to start going through the book of Exodus together. We're going to get to see, like, we know that part, right? Well, God brought him down there to bring him back up. Okay, yeah, you know the rest of the story. But 
Put yourself back in Jacob's sandals. This is crazy. It's good to be crazy as a Christian sometimes, isn't it? If that's what you want to call me, fine. But I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow God. God tells him. God tells him that he's going to bring him back up. God himself speaks to Jacob, reminds him of his faithfulness, says it will endure. He reiterates that multi-generational nature of the covenant, which we've talked about, that this is for, for Abraham, it's for you and your children and your children's children. This is an ongoing promise. This is a covenant that God made that even we experience and take joy in today. This is a covenant promise of God. And in verse four, he says, I'm not only gonna go down with you, but he'll bring him back up. I mean, how can that be? How can God say that? Well, he'll bring his body up. Okay, but don't forget this. Notice he's calling him Israel, as we pointed out last week. I'll make of you a great nation. By bringing Jacob up, he's saying, I'm gonna bring up your prosperity. God's actually telling him ahead of time, I'm gonna bring you down there and I'm going to deliver you. God's gonna bring up Israel out of Egypt. God's going to make a great nation of Israel, just as he had promised Abraham. And where's he going to take them? To the wilderness, right? <laughs> but where's he ultimately taking them? He's taking them to Canaan, taking them back to the promised land. He's taking them right back there. So God tells Jacob, don't be dismayed. Don't be terrified. Now, there's no way Jacob could have known the magnitude of the journey that lied before him. In fact, he doesn't really need to know that, does he? He doesn't need to know that. He doesn't need to know about the hundreds of years of oppression and bondage that await his descendants, does he? All he needs to know is what matters most in the moment. That's what he needs to know, and that's exactly what God gives him. I'll paraphrase. I am God. I am in control. You can trust me. I'll bring to pass everything that I have promised to do. Notice how God reveals himself to him, God of your fathers. God is the covenant God. So Jacob reorients himself to God and goes on his way worshiping. At the news of Joseph's invitation, he turns from his inward toil, his inward despair and inward hopelessness that we've seen chapter after chapter, and he turns to the God who is faithful Perhaps if the song had been written then, you could almost picture Jacob singing the lyrics that we just sang together. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. And he left it all. We've seen from our text this morning, both Joseph's revelation and Jacob's reorientation. All that's left now is to take these things and to apply them, to apply them to our own lives, to, for me, <laughs> to call each of us to recognize what Joseph and Jacob and even Jacob's other sons have come to recognize. And that is this, that God indeed does work all things together for good for those who love him, those whom he loves.
So we come now to our third and final point this morning, our recognition, our recognition. Like the patriarchal family before us came to recognize God's great faithfulness in their lives, so Deland McCullough and Sherman Smith did so as well. As we pointed out, their story is truly remarkable, so much so that it might even seem unbelievable. Again, there's just no humanly way that this could have come about, right? God had to do it. God had to do this. So we do what we should. We do what those two Christian brothers have done. If you hear their testimonies, they give all the praise and all the glory to God. For he's the one who has done this. God's the one who made it come to pass. And God is so faithful to do that, not only for them, but for us as well. I think God gives us stories like these. He gives us accounts like these for many reasons. I'll name just a couple. First, when we hear stories like that, they provide for us a living illustration of exactly what the Bible teaches over and over again. Just like the story of Joseph, we're called to see and to celebrate the sovereign grace of God, to celebrate it in the, in the lives of Deland and Sherman. Things like this, stories like this, they're living illustrations and they invite us to worship God, to worship the God who does the impossible, who does the unthinkable, the God who does the unimaginable to fulfill his promises and work out his will for his people. So they're an invitation. And second, I think they beat our eardrums a little bit and tell us you have to have hope. Christians have hope, to have hope in God and his good purposes for our lives, for your life. And let's be honest, oftentimes we need such hope. Maybe you've got it all figured out. But if you're like me, you need that hope. You're in the middle of your story. We're all in the middle of our stories. Some of us have already experienced wonderful tales of grace and we share them freely. But many of us and probably all of us at times feel more like Joseph as he's sitting there in prison wondering, why this? Or we feel like Jacob as he holds his son's bloodied coat we struggle to make sense of the circumstances or even believe that our lives will even amount to a story worthy of being told, yet worthy of being used as an illustration. Any of you feel that way right now? Do any of you feel that way? How many of you long to know the ending of your story? How many of you wish if you wish you could see what happens in something like the bliss of chapter 45 while you're suffering through the hell of chapter 37? How many of you long for a glimpse, a glimpse of God's supernatural hand, his sovereign good work right here and right now? I want you to know you're not alone if you feel that way. You're not alone. I wish that I, as your pastor, could tell you that everything will work out just as you hope it will. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could believe the lie that is so often told, that lie that if you just have enough faith, if you just do enough of the right things, if you just believe a little bit more in yourself, then things will go your way. 
I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. I refuse to lie to mislead you. But here's what I can do and what I will do. I'll remind you that the author of your story, the author of your story is the same author of Joseph's story and Jacob's story and Dylan's story and Sherman's story. And that author is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises are unwavering. God is faithful to every word he has said. And he is so committed to his covenant promises, so committed to them, that he sealed them with the blood of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God will not fail to fulfill all of his will for you. He won't fail. Though we don't know, though the road be dark, God is at work and he's faithful to do his work He will not fail to fulfill his will for you. He's sworn so by himself. He has given his son to you as a pledge and he's confirmed it by putting his Holy Spirit into your very heart. God will indeed remain faithful to you and he's gonna write your story according to his sovereign purposes for you. I know that. I can tell you that much. I can tell you that I'll be with you as you walk. The people around you can tell you we'll be with you as you walk. And yes, we should do that. But we should point one another to the faithful and true God, the one who is good. And because he's good, everything he does is good. So I'll ask you this, will you recognize his goodness? Will you acknowledge his goodness? Will you stand on the firm foundation of his word? And will you renew your hope in him and in his sovereign grace to you? Will you still yet worship the author of your story, even when you're not sure what page you're on, what chapter you're in, or where it's even going? Will you still yet worship him? Can you find it in your heart to say, not you, Not me, not this, not that, not if, not when, not but God. Can you say, but God? Can you say that? But God, can you once again recognize his goodness? Can you renew your hope in him? Faith like a child to say in God, but God. That's my prayer. I pray that you'll do that for his glory, for your good. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?